Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, on the morning of December 26, 2007, Carnation Post Office worker Linda Teeley noticed that her colleague and longtime friend Judy Anderson had not arrived for work. Judy and Linda had worked together for over a decade, and it was entirely out of character for Judy to miss the post-holiday season rush at the mailroom in Carnation, King County, Washington. It was past 7 a.m., meaning Judy was over half an hour late, and Linda instinctively had a bad feeling. Linda made the 10-minute journey along the rural and tree-lined Northeast 346th Avenue toward the house Judy had shared with her husband Wayne for over 30 years. When she arrived at the bottom of the driveway, she found that the gate was locked with a heavy chain tethered to the adjoining post, and she was immediately alarmed. If the gate was locked, it meant that Judy had not left the house for work, and Linda knew that was a bad sign. Linda left her vehicle by the gate and walked along the dusty driveway. The short walk felt longer as Linda's worry grew with each step. She passed a trailer usually occupied by Judy's youngest daughter and her boyfriend. Linda could see the single-story blue house where Judy and Wayne had raised their three children. Linda anticipated the Anderson's dog sneaking up and nipping her ankles as he usually did, but she was only met by an eerie silence on the front porch. After her knocks on the door past the open screen door went unanswered, Linda turned the handle and found the door unlocked. Moments later, Linda frantically called 911 and told the dispatcher there had been a murder. Uh, there's been a murder. There's three people dead that I can see right now. Inside? I just came up. She works with me. Inside the house? Yes. What do you see? There's a baby and a man and a woman, and she's my best friend. Linda also advised the dispatcher that she believed Judy's daughter, Michelle, could have been responsible. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 51 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. 
When deputies arrived at the property, they had to ensure that they were not walking into an active shooter situation. It took 32 minutes for the dispatcher to tell Linda she could leave the house. All the while, she had been absolutely terrified and traumatized by what she had discovered in the home of her best friend. Once officers entered the property, they immediately saw the body of a man lying face up on the floor. He had sustained an apparent gunshot wound to the face. In the family room, propped up against the sofa, the officers saw the body of a woman. Lying face up next to her was the body of a little boy. All of the victims had been shot, and knowing that there were members of the Anderson family still unaccounted for, officers searched the rest of the home. When they returned to the family room, they noticed another body bundled beneath the female victim. It was the body of a little girl. As more officers began to arrive, someone spotted what looked to be a blood trail leading from the family room through the kitchen and out the back door. Unsure if they were about to discover more bodies or an armed killer, the deputies drew their weapons and carefully approached the shed behind the house. As they got closer, they could see a piece of old carpet crudely covering something outside the shed. Once they lifted the carpet, they realized it was another male victim. He was wearing just a t-shirt and his trousers were around his ankles. Another officer opened the shed door and discovered a sixth body. The victims were identified as 60-year-old Wayne Anderson, his wife, 61-year-old Judy Anderson, their 32-year-old son, Scott, Scott's 32-year-old wife, Erica, and Scott and Erica's children, five-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan. Wayne and Judy had been married for 31 years, and they had settled in the house incarnation in the late 1970s. They had three children, Mary, who Wayne had adopted when he married her mother, Judy, Scott, and their youngest daughter, Michelle. Wayne worked as a Boeing engineer and was close to retirement, while Judy had worked in the local postal service for years. She loved working as a mail carrier. It suited her outgoing personality, and she knew everyone in the area. Judy was an adoring mother and grandmother. Her colleague, Jan Hollenbach, said, She was close to all her kids. They were everything to her. Scott Anderson was their middle child and only son. He grew up in Carnation and graduated from Cedar Crest High School before studying at the University of Washington. He then went on to work in construction. Scott had met Erica while they were still in their teens, and they got married in 1999. By December 2007, Scott and Erica had been together for over 17 years. They lived in Black Diamond with their two children, five-year-old Olivia and Nathan, who turned three just three weeks before the murders. As his neighbor, Mike Gould, said, Scott was a friendly guy. He worked insane hours, but when he wasn't working, he was devoted to his family. 
At the scene of the mass murder, the officers made their way down the driveway to the trailer usually occupied by the Andersons' youngest daughter, 29-year-old Michelle and her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe. There was no answer at the door, and the officers were concerned that Michelle and Joseph had met the same horrific fate as the other members of the Anderson family, so they forced their way inside. There was no one there, but the officers noted how dirty and cold the trailer was. Detectives also learned that a 911 call came from the Andersons' house at around 5.15 p.m. on Christmas Eve. The caller was barely audible, and the dispatcher attempted to call back twice before they notified local officers about the dropped call with what sounded like party sounds in the background. Within half an hour, officers arrived at the foot of the driveway and found the gate was locked. They did not attempt to go around the gate or make any further inquiries about the caller. A perimeter was erected around the five-and-a-half-acre property in order to secure the crime scene. This was something that immediately gained attention in the quiet, rural part of Kings County. By 11 a.m., the road leading to the Andersons' house was filled with emergency vehicles and press vans. But one vehicle stood out in particular. A black pickup truck was at the foot of the driveway, and the driver identified herself as Michelle Anderson. Joseph was in the passenger seat, and he told the deputy that they'd been on their way to Las Vegas to get married, but turned back when they got a flat tire. Michelle asked if something had happened at a neighbor's house along the same road, and officers asked if they would be willing to accompany them along the driveway to speak with detectives. Michelle and Joseph agreed, and they were questioned separately. Michelle was seated in a patrol car with the lead officer, Detective Tompkins. Detective Tompkins noted that Michelle did not seem concerned about the heavy police presence. She simply asked if someone had stolen a car she had been working on fixing up. Michelle told the detective that she had last spoken to her parents on the morning of Christmas Eve and told them that she and Joseph were planning to elope. Michelle said that she had left her parents' home at around 4 or 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve and hadn't seen them since. This was around the time that the dropped 911 call had been made, and on closer inspection, a woman's voice can be heard on the call crying out, not the kids. The detectives pressed Michelle Anderson and told her they thought she knew why they were on her parents' property. After asking whether her father had a heart attack or something, Michelle eventually blurted out, It's my fault. I'm sorry. Michelle was asked what had happened, and she stated, My brother owes me a lot of money. I just wanted back the money he took from me. My parents weren't even... I don't care about it. I love my family so much, and it hurt when he took that money and didn't give it back. Michelle said that her parents had also asked her to start paying rent for the trailer she and Joseph had been living in on the property. Michelle and Joseph met on an online dating website around five years earlier. A year before the murders, they had moved into the trailer on Michelle's parents' property. Neither of them held down a job for very long. 
Michelle and Joseph readily admitted their role in the murders during police interviews on the afternoon the murders were discovered. Court documents read, in part, Michelle stated that she was tired of everybody stepping on her. She stated that she was upset with her parents and her brother, and that if the problems did not get resolved on December 24th, then her intent was to definitely kill everybody. With the confessions, investigators were able to piece together the events of that day. Wayne Anderson was sitting in the family room at around 4 p.m. Christmas Eve was his favorite day of the year because it was when his children and grandchildren would gather at their house to share gifts and spend time together. Judy was in the back room wrapping presents for her grandchildren as they eagerly awaited the arrival of Scott, Erica, and their children. The couple's oldest daughter, Mary, had planned to be there that evening, but her son had been ill, and she didn't want to risk passing it on to anyone else over the holidays. The house was decorated for the festive season. The baubles on the tree reflected a tinted mirror image of the television as a dark pickup truck pulled up outside. Michelle and Joseph walked onto the porch and through the front door, the first of the guests to arrive. Instead of exchanging pleasantries and well wishes, Michelle immediately began to complain to her parents about how much she hated her brother and how she felt as though he were their favorite child. Judy and Wayne had enough, and they told Michelle that she needed to start paying rent and helping out, but Michelle did not want to hear it. This was not the Christmas Eve they had envisioned and Judy still had gifts to wrap before Nathan and Olivia arrived at 5 p.m., so she left the room while Michelle and Wayne continued to argue about money. On Michelle's instruction, Joseph followed Judy into the craft room and offered to help her with the gifts. Michelle began shouting at her father and said, I did so much for the family, and everybody abused me and attacked me so much. All I want is my money back so I can leave. Michelle was incensed that her father was not giving in to her incessant demands, so she pulled a 9mm semi-automatic pistol out of a sweatshirt she had been holding and aimed it at Wayne. The first shot missed and the gun jammed. Hearing the commotion, Joseph and Judy ran into the room. Joseph quickly unholstered a 357 revolver from his waist and fired a single shot into Wayne's head. Judy screamed in horror as her husband of three decades dropped dead in front of her. In a panic, she ran toward the kitchen, but she was trapped between the refrigerator and the wall when Joseph calmly and quickly approached her and shot her in the neck. The bullet was later found lodged in her spine. Joseph fired a second shot into Judy's head, which killed her instantly. Michelle told the investigators that she had killed her parents because she was fed up, but she still wanted to confront her brother. She knew he would be arriving within an hour. Before Scott and his family arrived, Michelle and Joseph spent time concealing Judy and Wayne's murders. Michelle dragged her mother's body from the kitchen to a shed outside before helping Joseph pull her father's body from the family room across the backyard and left it in front of the shed because they couldn't fit him inside. They took a piece of old carpet that was leaning against the shed and used it to cover his body. Michelle told the detectives, 
I dragged him in the backyard so when Scott came over, I could try to get my money from him and just leave. Back inside the house, Michelle and Joseph quickly cleaned up most of the blood around the family room and kitchen in time for Scott to pull up outside the property. The children excitedly ran into their grandparents' house. They began playing in the family room, completely oblivious to the bloody scene that had taken place an hour earlier. Scott and Erica sat down on the sofa and watched their children play happily. At one point, Scott asked Michelle where their parents were, and Michelle said they were in the bathroom. She then started to argue with Scott about the money she claimed he owed her. Michelle was standing behind her father's favorite chair while she confronted her brother, so he could not see her holding the 357 revolver Joseph had used to murder their parents. Michelle later told the detectives that she was just going to shoot everybody, and Joseph was only there in case the gun jammed again. Once Scott saw the gun in Michelle's hands, he attempted to lunge at her to protect his wife and children who were just feet away but Michelle aimed the gun at Scott's face and pulled the trigger. Michelle fired the gun a number of times. A bullet perforated the skin below Scott's mouth and lodged in his lung. But despite the fatal wound, Scott used his last bit of strength to try and get Michelle away from his children, but he collapsed on the floor and began to bleed out. Erica pulled the children close during the commotion, but Michelle didn't care. She aimed the revolver at her sister-in-law and fired three shots in quick succession. The first shot did not hit Erica, but the others did. And despite her injuries, she climbed over the back of the sofa to the phone and dialed 911 as Michelle rushed to reload the gun. That was the call at 5.13 p.m. The line went dead and Erica crawled back to the sofa where her children were. She was bleeding profusely and slumped against the seat. Joseph had managed to unjam the 9mm as five-year-old Olivia pulled herself behind her mother to try and hide. Michelle later told detectives, They were clinging to their mom, screaming. Olivia had been hit in the abdomen by one of the bullets Michelle had shot at Scott. As the little girl cowered on her front between her mother's arm and the sofa, Joseph put the 9mm pistol against the back of her head and pulled the trigger. The bullet was later found lodged in the floor beneath her. Joseph then put the pistol to the left side of three-year-old Nathan's head and fired a single shot. Nathan had crawled into his mother's arms and put his head on her chest in a desperate search for safety. The bullet that had gone through the left side of his head was found in his mother's chest during the autopsy. He had been lying so close to his mother that his hair was still on the bullet wound in her chest. Michelle later said, Nathan looked like he knew that he was going to die and was accepting of it. She told the detectives that she had instructed Joseph to shoot the kids because she believed they would be scarred forever after witnessing the shootings and because they had seen who had done it. Michelle said it was, quote, like a culmination of not wanting them to live with these memories and not wanting witnesses. As a final act of cruelty, Erica was shot between the eyes. 
Michelle and Joseph then gathered all the towels they had used to clean up Judy and Wayne's blood and burned them in a pit outside their trailer. They also burned Judy's wallet. Afterwards, they got into the pickup truck. The pair drove north on I-5 before stopping on a bridge and tossing the guns and ammunition into the river below. During the course of her interview with the police, Michelle admitted that she had intended to murder her entire family on Christmas Eve. She had thought about it for weeks. Michelle said they intended to flee, but decided to return to the property and pretend to discover the bodies because they felt it would make them seem less guilty. Michelle and Joseph were both charged with six counts of aggravating first-degree murder. During a press conference, prosecutor Dan Satterberg described how given the magnitude of the crime, they would most likely be seeking the death penalty if Michelle and Joseph were found guilty. The prosecutor explained that while long-standing bitterness and a perceived family debt may have been factors in the murders, the motive for the slayings may never be known. Satterberg said, In the end, what motive could you find that would make sense of the senseless slaying of the Anderson family? More information about Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe became public in the wake of the murder charges. Neighbors told the press that the couple had covered the windows of the trailer with black garbage bags shortly after they moved in, and they erected a chicken wire fence to keep local kids off the property. Stephanie Ammons, who lived across the road from the couple, remarked, They had a phobia of anyone coming in their yard. If your cat walked on their driveway or your kid's ball rolled on their lawn, they would freak out. Other neighbors said that both Michelle and Joseph appeared to be paranoid and erratic at times. They could often be heard shouting, and they had lodged numerous complaints for minor incidents with others. Their antisocial tendencies were such that they waited until the middle of the night to take out their garbage so they could avoid others. The arrests came as a surprise to Joseph's family in Minneapolis. His mother, Sean Johnson, said that her son was a good Christian, and she couldn't understand what had caused him to snap. She described how Joseph hated firearms and would even shun toy guns as a child. Joseph's mother recalled that he had never been in trouble with the law before and hadn't had so much as a speeding ticket. She said, He's always been kind. He wouldn't hurt a fly. It's surreal. Joseph had cut ties with his family after an argument over money, and his mother believed Michelle was the root cause of the rift in the relationship between her and her son. Sean explained that she had only spoken with Michelle over the phone, but she had always seemed distant. Sean told the Seattle Post Intelligencer, he said he loved her and that he planned on getting married. The Seattle Times briefly spoke with Joseph over the phone while he was on suicide watch behind bars. Speaking about the victims, he remarked, I'm sorry that they're gone. They were my family too, you know? I hope wherever they're at, they're at peace. That's all I'm going to say about them. Joseph was asked about his family and explained that the murders had made him realize how much he missed them. He told the reporter, It's easy enough to think that they don't like you or don't care about you but I wish to God I got in touch with them before this. I would have even been able to visit them. I guess that's not going to happen now. News of the mass murder shook the community incarnation to its core. 
One of the women who lived on Judy's mail route, Paulette Jacqueline, spoke with the Seattle Times and said that she had barely been able to sleep since the bodies were discovered. She told the paper, Every time I lay down and close my eyes, her face is the first face in my head. The bottom of Anderson's driveway was soon covered with floral arrangements, cards, and balloon tributes for the victims, and candlelight vigils were held in local churches and at the Carnation City Hall. On January 9, 2008, Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe appeared in court to enter pleas to the six murder charges. They both pleaded not guilty. Kent County Prosecutor Dan Satterberg had 30 days to decide whether he would be seeking the death penalty against the couple. If he did, that would mean Michelle Anderson would be the first woman to face the death penalty in King County. Ben Anderson, Mary's son and Wayne and Judy's grandson said, I personally would rather see them sit in jail the rest of their lives than be executed. I think the death penalty is just an easy way out. A week later, hundreds of mourners filed into East Ridge Christian Assembly for the funeral service for Wayne, Judy, Scott, Erica, Olivia, and Nathan Anderson. A slideshow was played in the background, offering a glimpse into their lives as the eulogies were read for the victims. Lori Cleaver, the postmaster of Carnation, presented the surviving Anderson family members with the U.S. flag which had been flown at half-mast over the post office since the shootings. Speaking about Judy, Lori said, Judy watched schoolchildren grow into adulthood. She was always aware of births and weddings. Dixon Daybell, one of Wayne's colleagues, fondly recalled how Wayne always brought in fresh-baked zucchini bread. Dixon likened Wayne to an M&M, stating that he was rough on the outside, but warm and friendly on the inside. One of Erica's close friends, Carrie Horner, described her as the most selfless and loving mother she had ever met and always put her family before anything else. Scott was described as being an honest and hardworking father. Pastor Dan Mateer told the crowd of mourners that Olivia had just learned to read and how Nathan loved nothing more than cars, hot dogs, cookies, and playing with his big sister. Mary, Judy and Wayne's eldest daughter, was extremely close to her mother. They shared a passion for gardening and spoke on the phone numerous times a day. Judy told friends she hoped she could train Mary to take over the postal job she had held for so long. Mary's son Ben spoke at the funeral and said he could not have asked for better grandparents. He told those in attendance, They will be my friends for the rest of my life, and I will say I'm proud to be an Anderson. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In the weeks after the funeral, Prosecutor Satterberg agreed to postpone his office's decision on whether or not they would be seeking the death penalty against Michelle Anderson and Joseph McEnroe. In May 2008, King County Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Ramsdell ordered Michelle to undergo a psychiatric evaluation in order to determine if she was fit to stand trial. Two mental health professionals were ordered to examine Michelle Anderson for the prosecution's case and the defense. Michelle's behavior was alarming to her own legal counsel. At one point, she even called a local television station from jail, confessing to the murders once again, and demanded that she be sentenced to death. Michelle explained that she had wanted to plead guilty during the arraignment, but her defense attorneys would not allow her to. Michelle said she was sorry for killing her family, but claimed she snapped after years of physical and emotional abuse. She described how the money dispute was just a symptom and that her rage had grown steadily over the years of family conflict. She also stated, I've been assessed by three different mental health specialists, and they've all said I'm sane and competent. Her claims of abuse upset the surviving members of the victim's family. Ben Anderson, Wayne and Judy's grandson, said that he had never seen anything that could support Michelle's statement. People who knew the victims came forward, and they described how Wayne and Judy had tried their hardest to help Michelle over the years. They had even let her live on their property rent-free for a year. Michelle was granted a change of attorney as a result of numerous complaints to the judge. In October 2008, Prosecutor Satterberg announced that they would be seeking the death penalty in the case. This was only the second time that King County had sought capital punishment since the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, had been prosecuted. Numerous delays followed as the prosecution and defense teams argued over the death penalty and the charges, which included aggravated murder. In January 2014, Joseph attempted to plead guilty to the murders in a bid to avoid a death sentence. In a lengthy statement, he admitted to the murders, However, he pleaded guilty to non-capital aggravated murder, which is a crime not listed in state law. King County Senior Deputy Prosecutor Scott O'Toole lambasted Joseph, saying, Joseph McEnroe is not going to dictate his punishment. 
The prosecution denied the guilty plea, and Joseph was committed to face trial separately from Michelle Anderson. Joseph McEnroe's trial began in January 2015. During the opening statement by Prosecutor Scott O'Toole, the jury heard that at least 16 rounds were fired inside the Andersons' home on Christmas Eve 2007. He warned the jury that the descriptions of the murders were going to be gruesome and said that nothing could explain the callousness and senselessness of the murders. Joseph's defense attorney, Leo Hamaji, claimed that Joseph had acted under Michelle Anderson's control. Hamaji told the court that Michelle had infected Joseph with her paranoid worldview and that the influence Michelle exerted over her boyfriend was such that he could not go against her on the day of the murders. During the trial, a recorded interview between Joseph and the detectives was played to the jury. The recording was made when Joseph was sitting in a patrol vehicle outside the family home in Carnation after the bodies were discovered. He rambled about his cat, giggled, muttered, and spoke about marrying Michelle in Las Vegas. After more than 90 minutes, the investigator told Joseph that Michelle had informed another investigator an entirely different story and suggested that he tell the truth. Joseph then made a full confession to the murders and said that he had killed Erica and the children because he didn't want them to turn him in. He was eerily calm as he described what happened on that fateful day. Michelle's ex-boyfriend, Mark Mann, was called as a witness for the defense. Mark had dated Michelle for years, and when they broke up, he moved out. Joseph moved in. According to Mark, Michelle had suffered from depression and had taken medication on and off. After Michelle was arrested, she called Mark and demanded that he find her an attorney. The defense highlighted this as evidence of her controlling nature. Medical testimony from a psychiatrist who had examined Joseph was also heard at trial. Dr. Donald Dutton told the jury that, in his opinion, Joseph McEnroe had diminished mental capacity and was heavily influenced by Michelle's control. The doctor testified, He's in this protective mode and playing out this game plan, which was set up ahead of time, to kill the entire family. Joseph had told Dr. Dutton that he believed Michelle would come after him and kill him if he tried to leave or if he did not participate in the murder. The doctor explained that Joseph had hallucinations and spirit guides and that he did not have the ability to walk away from the codependent relationship. He said that growing up, Joseph had been neglected by his mother, who he described as promiscuous and mentally ill. Dr. Dutton diagnosed Joseph with schizotypal and borderline personality disorders. He had very few friends, and most of his relationships as an adult were online. The doctor told the jury that Joseph had been so desperate for a relationship that on four different occasions, he had flown or driven to meet four women he had met online and had sent his possessions to them beforehand. The fourth woman? That was Michelle. He said that as soon as Joseph moved in, Michelle took control of the relationship. She limited Joseph's internet access, refused to let him get a driver's license, and shamed him. According to Dr. Dutton, the relationship had all the hallmarks of an abusive relationship. At one point, Joseph had even offered to castrate himself after Michelle accused him of being sexist. 
He further testified that Michelle had kept a hit list of people she believed had wronged her, and that list included members of her family. Michelle allegedly made Joseph believe that she had been abused and convinced him that she would not be able to evolve to a new spiritual level as long as her parents were alive. The defense argued that the case involved two people with extreme impairments and mental illness. During closing remarks, Prosecutor O'Toole reminded the jury that the mass murder was well-planned and premeditated. He said, A family of 30 years does not exist anymore. Not only did he provide assistance to Michelle Anderson, he fired bullets into the heads of five of the six victims. Joseph McEnroe did not display any emotion as the verdicts were read out. He was found guilty of six counts of first-degree murder with aggravating circumstances. The same jury who had returned the guilty verdict then had to determine whether Joseph would be sentenced to life in prison or sentenced to death. During the sentencing phase of the trial, Joseph McEnroe's attorney, Bill Prestia, called the murderous couple a match made in hell, but said that despite Joseph's horrendous actions, he did not deserve to die. Prestia explained that Joseph had been mentally impaired and unable to see any alternative than to follow Michelle Anderson's plan. Wayne and Judy's eldest daughter, Mary, spoke at the sentencing hearing. She described how she had rarely been able to leave the house since the murders years earlier. She told the court, It's destroyed us. They were my family. I miss them. We loved each other. Linda Teeley, Judy's best friend, who had discovered the horrific scene, also provided an impact statement. Linda described how she had left her much-loved position at the post office within months of the murders because she could not get the scene out of her mind. She said that she worried whenever someone did not collect their mail and was plagued by fears that something had happened to them. Joseph McEnroe then made a statement on his own behalf in an effort to receive leniency. His demeanor on the stand raised questions as he was evidently medicated, and his tone and behavior shifted as he spoke. He recalled his childhood, his suicide attempts, the abuse he suffered at the hands of his mother's boyfriends, and the hallucinations he experienced. He spoke about Michelle and the murders. So she... Uh... Erica says, um, and she said, oh, God, what is it? No, we love you. We, you don't have to do this. And, you know, it struck as how she had said, Michelle had been saying time and time again, I have to do this. I have to do this. You don't understand. I have to do this. And so, you know, I'm sitting here just panicked and, you know, just grasped the one thing that made any sense at that point. What was that? Yeah, I do have to do this. So I said, yeah, I do. And so I, I'm sorry, Erica. I shot whole false so that she wouldn't have to watch her whole children die. And then I shot Nathan because, because he was close. And then I shot Olivia because I thought that otherwise that they would, that things would be worse for them if I didn't. Otherwise, I No, I thought that I wanted us to get a, 
to leave. I want us to get out. I want us to get away from them. And I thought that we couldn't do it if they were still alive. So, so afterwards, I stood there for maybe a minute, trying to decide if I should just kill myself or not. Joseph McEnroe claimed that Michelle Anderson had become obsessed with killing her family and said that if they killed them, it would show the world that people shouldn't mess with her. Joseph explained that he tried to advise Michelle against killing her loved ones, but he eventually relented and trusted that killing her family would end their problems. As far as I was concerned, if he, if Scotty showed up with as far as I knew, if Scott had showed up and said, oh yeah, here's your money, they would have been leaving it. I, you know, look, she had stripped away everything that could resist, that could resist her, okay? She'd spent years doing this. She stripped away everything that, so it's just, okay, all that was left was obedience. Okay, all that was left was obedience. I know that's not very, I'm not trying to go and say it's okay. I'm not trying to go off and like give this as an excuse. I'm just trying to explain. At one point, Joseph broke down in tears as he spoke about killing Judy. He wrapped his arms around his head, started to jerk around, and then said to the jury, If you hate me, I hate me too. When speaking about his victims, Joseph went on to say, I've taken their futures and what they might have been. I've also taken them from these people who had done nothing but show me kindness and goodness. Joseph explained that he killed Nathan and Olivia because he had just killed their parents and wanted to save them from a life of hell. He said that when he killed them, he thought they would be reincarnated. During the trial sentencing phase, the jury did not need to be unanimous in their verdict unless it was to sentence Joseph McEnroe to death. If just one juror could not recommend the death penalty, then Joseph's life would be spared, and that is what happened after a week of deliberations. On the day of sentencing, the judge gestured to six carnations and placards in the courtroom gallery and said, That empty bench and those six carnations symbolize the lives you've taken. The horrible fate that befell them should never have fallen on any human being. Before Michelle Anderson's trial began in January 2016, the prosecution announced that they would no longer be seeking the death penalty against her. Most of the testimony presented at Michelle's trial mirrored that provided at Joseph McEnroe's. She, too, was found guilty of six counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Well, a witness in Mr. McEnroe's trial commented that the relationship between Michelle Anderson and Joe McEnroe was a marriage made in hell, and I don't think truer words could be said. Without the synergistic effect of their relationship, both individuals would have likely remained in obscurity for their entire lives. It would have gone unnoticed and unknown, and the world would have been a better place as a result. Unfortunately, fate intervened and these two damaged individuals with personality disorders joined forces and a monumental tragedy ensued, and the lives of many will never be the same as a result of that. At Mr. McEnroe's sentencing, this court set aside a bench in the courtroom 
upon which placards and white carnations were placed. These placards and carnations symbolically represented the six victims in this case. Wayne Anderson, Judy Anderson, Scotty Anderson, Erica Anderson, Olivia Anderson, and Nathan Anderson. At that sentencing, I stressed how these six individuals were not forgotten by the court, the lawyers, or the jury. It may then seem that way to outsiders as we focus on the procedures related to the trial process, but I can assure you that nothing could be further from the truth. Even though we did not know them before their tragic deaths, we all know them now, and I doubt that any of us will ever forget them. Although I did not know them in life, I think I can safely say that I know what they would want me to focus on at this point. I don't think they would want me to waste this precious opportunity addressing Ms. Anderson. The sentence I must impose on her, as you've heard, is essentially mandated by statute. And they would probably also suggest that I've already spent enough time talking to her. Instead, I think they would prefer that I speak to the secondary victims of this case, who have suffered so much hardship and grief as a result of Ms. Anderson's actions. The list of secondary victims is extremely long. It obviously includes family and friends of the victims, but it also includes all of the witnesses in this case, from the police and paramedics who were involved, to Judy's friend, Linda Teeley, who unfortunately stumbled into that horrific scene while checking on the welfare of her friend. It would also include the jurors, who in fulfilling their civic duty were thrust into the limelight and exposed to gruesome images and testimony that will forever be part of their new reality. And it would also include the courtroom participants who in the course of upholding their oaths and doing their respective jobs confront these types of horrific situations on almost a daily basis. To all of those people, I think Wayne, Judy, Scott, Erica, Olivia, and Nathan would say thank you for enduring what had to be done in order to obtain a just verdict in this case and in Mr. McEnroe's. Nothing will bring those six victims back, but your efforts and commitment honor their memories. I think they would also want me to specifically acknowledge Pam Mantle, Tony Mantle, Mary Victoria Anderson, Wendy Wheat McCoy, Ken, Linda, Michael, Robert, and Julie Anderson, and Stacy and Kelsey Webb. You have all suffered tremendous losses. There are no words that are adequate to even attempt to address what you've been through. As a father, I empathize with Stacy Webb, who wrote that no one should ever have to tell a five-year-old girl that her best friend was murdered by her aunt and her boyfriend. You're right. That should never happen, but unfortunately, it did. I was astounded that Pam and Tony Mantle managed to attend the trial religiously and relive the horrifying testimony of that terrible day on multiple occasions. The fortitude it took to listen to that 911 call in which Erica pleads to spare the kids is beyond my comprehension. Yet you both managed to muster the courage and composure to attend these painful proceedings in order to see for yourself that justice was done for your loved ones. For that expression of love and support for the victims, I'm sure they'd want me to say a special thank you to you all as well. Fortunately, this lengthy chapter of your waking nightmare is almost over. I sincerely hope that when you leave here today, you will never have occasion to visit this courthouse again for reasons related to these murders. I also hope that the healing 
that has been delayed by this process can now begin in earnest and that happier times will prevail. Lengthy delays between the murders and the trials only compounded the trauma and grief for those who loved Wayne, Judy, Scott, Erica, Olivia, and Nathan Anderson. Michelle Anderson argued that she killed her family because of money, but no evidence was ever found to support her claim that her brother owed her anything. episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.